0: Hello, I'm Greg, and welcome to a Talkback episode for Inappropriate Conversations One Thirty Four. As I mentioned, uh, the Walk the Earth Six, which is the bookend, the precursor, if you will, to this particular episode, as they originally were posted at inappropriateconversations.org. Walk the Earth Six raised a question on December Eighth of Two Thousand Thirteen. And just a few days later, on December 13th, 2013, I took a shot at answering that question again, but sort of from an inappropriate conversations perspective. And it deals with uh, gender segregation. Uh, One was talking about whether gender should be any sort of a rule breaker or a, a role identifier for participation in worship. That's kind of the focus of Walk the Earth. But for this one, I chose instead to look at it slightly more broadly. The blurb at InappropriateConversations.org on the December page of the right navigation bar under the archives says this, Once misinformation becomes tradition, it is extremely difficult to correct. This is true of a pope 1,500 years ago who willfully merged the identity of several women into one misleading Mary to deliver a sermon series on sinful women. More broadly, it is true of those who ignore the way Jesus interacted with women during his earthly ministry. Walk the Earth looked at how these mistaken views of gender impact the local church, but this inappropriate conversation, it looked back at the impact to the church universal and the great distance between the example of Christ and what we too often see today from clergy, including misleading or even lies told from the pulpit by clergy about women, and their role in ministry. I'll try to keep this introduction short, because as is a general rule, and it certainly is true in this case in December seven years ago, Walk the Earth episodes by their nature are shorter than Inappropriate Conversations episodes. Part of that is just the nature of making sure that I reserve time for a different drummer segment, as I have for every Inappropriate Conversation after the first couple of introductory episodes. And this one, the different drummer, Mary of Magdala, was part of the inspiration for doing the recording in the first place. Before jumping into the show, though, a couple of housekeeping reminders: Inappropriate Conversations number one thirty-four. This is several years ago, and there might be some information along the way that is out of date. The best way to reach this show is at www.inappropriateconversations.org. That may or may not have been the URL that I shared as just sort of the housekeeping information on a podcast back then. It, it's changed over time, and it's been .org with a .com redirect for more than a couple of years now. But this is an older show. The other thing is that I tend to break up the topics on inappropriate conversation with promotions, and I can't guarantee, having not re-listened to this episode, that I'm. this episode could be promoting a podcast that doesn't exist anymore, for example. I try to share these older episodes pretty much as is. So you take what you get from that. One thing that has been true the entire time, because I haven't bothered to make a change to it, seeing no reason, is that people who reach out to me can get me it. From an email perspective, I'm ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. For Twitter, I'm ic underscore greg, or at ic underscore greg. There's a Facebook page for both Inappropriate Conversations, and also Walk the Earth, separately and independently, on Facebook. on SoundCloud, I have stopped and need to pick back up to the process of posting some clips from older shows so that every uh, previous show, starting with the oldest, has an audio hint of what the episode is about. For me on SoundCloud, I'm also IC underscore Greg. You can find Inappropriate Conversations now on Spotify. That is part of the reason for a focus this year on talkback episodes trying to bring forward shows that are older than the beginning point for Spotify podcasts of the Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth shows. I also can be found on Stitcher or, frankly, anywhere else that you typically would catch podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about gender segregation, particularly within the church. I mentioned on the most recent episode of Walk the Earth, I'm going to do something for the first time here in terms of bringing the topic from Walk the Earth together and lining it up side by side with the next inappropriate conversations. So far, these two shows have been independent and distinct, one looking particularly at what happens when a family changes churches, for reasons that might be described as theological, certainly for reasons that reflect an issue within the church itself, and not just some matter of convenience, like a relocation, or trying to find a church with a better geographic location to a home, or something of that nature. With the church that we've recently left, we had actually moved from one part of town to the other and kept our location to this church in mind so that even in the process of changing homes, we were still close enough to go. We were loyal members. But something happened, and that's something forced to change, and the Walk the Earth podcast is all about that change. And as we've looked around at other churches, we've noticed some things that you might not think about if you stayed with one congregation for an extended period of time, as my family did. Things in this case about how other denominations and other congregations interact with people on the basis of their gender. Well, that led me to say I probably should explore this question of gender in the Bible and gender in the church, not just from a walk-the-earth perspective, what are we seeing when we're visiting churches, but from an inappropriate conversations perspective as well. What is the theology? Is there a mistake here, Is there something wrong with the politics driving the religious views within some congregations? And what do we do if that doesn't line up particularly well with what Jesus said, or perhaps even the Bible in general? So I want to do a couple of things with this inappropriate conversation show. I want to quote an author who has written a relatively new book that's provocative on just this topic. Her name is Sarah Bessie, and her book is called Feminist Jesus. I also want to take a look at a few passages of Scripture and help us understand kind of what was the perspective of Jesus when it comes to the relationship of gender, and how have we maybe, just maybe, misinterpreted the understandings of Peter and Paul. And then in the course of sharing that, perhaps we'll see how it goes, sharing it from the perspective of my own witness. I also want to share a song that I'll probably put at the very end of the episode, so don't be surprised if a clip or two of music appears along the way. Because music is one of the ways that I connect really directly with things that touch my heart. And this is one of these things that touch my heart. In previous Inappropriate Conversations, I've talked about my friendships with women, my relationships with women, and how important and informing those have been. In a lot of ways, my understanding of my relationship with the Holy Spirit has everything to do with a few, maybe just two or three, female friends that I've met along the way. So this isn't just a, an intellectual exercise for me. This is something that I take very seriously, and that my feelings about it run pretty passionately as well. First, though, you can listen to Inappropriate Conversations on Stitcher. Stitcher.com is the place where you can uh, find shows like Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth together on the same feed. But there are many other shows that I listen to that I find through the Stitcher app that I've downloaded onto my iPhone. There also is a corresponding app available for Android, and it's an excellent way to listen to podcasts, news, and other things on the go. www.stitcher.com Going a couple of episodes back in inappropriate conversations is really more than a month now. During this busy holiday time of year, it's sometimes a little bit hard to maintain the pace that I plan for releasing podcasts out onto the feed. Christianity 301 For me, a fairly deep dive into the theology that I draw from the New Testament. And among the key figures we find there, and one of the ones that I focused on in that episode, was Peter. Peter, Cephas, the Rock, whatever you might want to call him. One of the key disciples and apostles of Jesus Christ. And one of the things about Peter's story that's very interesting is, he was part of the group of apostles, because the apostles sometimes had different missions. Different areas of focus. And Peter, along with James, the brother of Jesus, were among the ones who were most focused on reaching Jews. That their impression was that Christianity was a splinter group from Judaism. And at the end of the day, if they saw Jews as God's chosen people and they saw Jesus as Abraham's seed, that those things came together and really led them into a strong focus on ministry toward the Jews. And Peter actually had what I can only describe as a surrealistic episode, with the Lord telling him, in no unmistaken terms, that he was making a mistake by excluding Gentiles, or by presuming that Gentiles had to convert to Judaism in order to be part of this new Christian sect, which would eventually become, of course, Christianity, the religion. And among the things described there, and I won't repeat myself from the Inappropriate Conversation show, Christianity 301, but What he learned there was that God was not going to require the new people who were going to hear this new message, this good news. He wasn't going to require them to become Jewish in order to become Christian, meaning that the Holy Spirit was leading Peter and leading him rather forcefully to the conclusion that he was going to have to give up the cultural norms and indeed the laws that he had grown up following that it wasn't just that the dietary laws were going away. That might have been the example in the hallucination. But when Peter then visited the home of Cornelius and saw the Holy Spirit coming upon Cornelius and his friends and family in baptism, Peter took that quite rightly as a sign that the law had disappeared, meaning that all of the rules of patriarchy that had followed through Judaism into the beginning of Christianity as a religion pretty much were not relevant anymore. You see this a little bit in Paul as well. I'll get to him at the end. But first, I want to quote a few passages from Sarah Bessie's book, Feminist Jesus. And I'm actually going to start with the words of Rachel Held Evans in the introduction, because I think it paints a very clear story of what I think some women in the church, especially women who feel called to ministry, are experiencing. It's not a pretty picture. Frankly, it's something that we should be ashamed of. Here's what Evans writes in the foreword. I listen as these stories emerge around many shared tables, with dinner rolls and wine between us, the butter softening, the candles dripping, as we talk into the night. A young seminarian shares the disappointment of speaking to an empty room the day she gave her first sermon in preaching class, and none of her male classmates showed up. A pastor recounts the time she approached a lectern at a conference only to see a man in the second row turn his chair around so he wouldn't have to face her. A funny, animated girl describes relief, she felt, when she and her husband of ten years realized they could function as a team of equal partners instead of imposing ill-fitting, hierarchical gender roles onto their relationship. A young mother quietly recounts the sexual abuse she suffered in the name of, quote, Biblical submission. Among other things, the last example Evans uses reminds me of one of the very earliest inappropriate conversations talking about companionship marriage. That David Mace, a leading evangelical Christian, and his wife taught for many years that companionship marriage is a better answer than this concept of hierarchical marriage. And he demonstrated it by putting his words into action, quite literally. Now, quoting Bessie's text, one of the first things that she does in this book that I think is very inviting is that she offers to kind of set down the weapons, uh, starts it off with a kind of a statement of detente. And here, I'll just let her speak to it because I think she says it quite well. Both sides can treat the Bible like a weapon. On both sides, there are extremists and dogmatists. We attempt to outdo each other with proof texts and apologetics, and I've heard it said that there is no more hateful person than a Christian who thinks you've got your theology wrong. In our hunger to be right, we memorize arguments, ready to spit them out at a moment's notice. And sadly, we reduce each other, brothers and sisters, to strum in arguments and brand each other enemies of the gospel. I know what it means to be branded as an enemy of the gospel, It would not surprise me if on this very week, at the very day I'm recording, I've been branded that behind my back. It happens. It's a little bit odd, though, to be branded an enemy of the gospel when you're quoting it, (laughs) when you're sharing it, and when you're trying to speak the words accurately. Here's an example. In Acts chapter 2, verse 18, a passage that actually quotes an Old Testament prophet, these words were shared, spoken out of the mouth of Peter, Early in his ministry, before he even had the vision that the angel shared with him about the fact that the Old Testament laws had gone away and that it was time for him to treat the Gentiles as well as the Jews as part of the flock that Jesus was calling. Here's the quote from Acts chapter 2, verse 18. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy there really is no other way to look at this passage spoken on the day of pentecost spoken at the promised arrival of the holy spirit on the apostles and thousands of followers who had come to witness the events of that day as the bible very clearly saying that men and women alike will both prophesy this flies in the face of those who say that women shouldn't be pastors that women can't be bishops that women shouldn't speak in church That women can't lead Sunday schools. What in the world does the Bible mean when it says they will prophesy? Now, of course, there are passages, and there are passages. And as Bessie notes early on in her book, too often we pick our sides and we use them as weapons. Well, I'm a radical moderate, I look at things from both perspectives. I reject the idea that there should be a conservative perspective and therefore no liberal views are welcome, or a liberal perspective and therefore no conservative views are welcome. In other words, I kind of reject most of the media in America today. But in the interest of you know playing both sides, because when I quote the scriptures here in a little bit, I'm going to quote them at length. I'm not using clobber verses. I'm not using the Bible as weapon. I'm going to provide context. I'm also to which should be to no one's surprise, I'm going to focus on the words of Jesus. I'm going to focus not just on the New Testament, but on the Gospels, and not just on the Gospels, but stories of Jesus, and perhaps the things he had to say. Because if Paul and Peter and James all say that nothing they say should be interpreted as a contradiction of their Lord and Savior, then heaven help those of us who seem to imply that that's true. Nevertheless, here are some of the words from Paul, for example, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. Furthermore, Paul says this Wives, submit yourselves to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Colossians, chapter 3, verses 18-19. And finally, the words of Peter. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that, if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 1-2. and 2. Bessie's analysis of these passages includes this observation. I'll jump straight to it. Bessie refers to the patriarchal relationships in these passages as a code that readers of their letters would understand. She says this, Paul and Peter used the codes as metaphors or scaffolding because they were familiar and daily, not because they were prescriptive or ideal. These passages were actually subversive in their time, because they placed demands on the assumed power of men, teaching them to be kind to their slaves, to be gentle with their children, to love their wives, and because they addressed the most powerless in a patriarchal society—the women, the children, the slaves. The Church attracted the powerless in droves. Celsus famously declared in the 2nd century that Christianity is a religion for women, children, and slaves— And so this spin on the codes was unheard of in the culture. Paul's and Peter's words line up with the bigger truths of the whole story of Scripture, particularly the life of Jesus, guiding our interpretations. In other words, to summarize, even speaking to women, or about how women should treat their husbands and husbands should treat their wives, was radical for its time. It was unheard of in other contemporary literature of its type. And it's why we have these passages in the New Testament speaking directly in many ways to women. And we don't have that many examples to fall back on from the Old Testament. There are passages which I won't recount right now. Paul speaking to a woman in Corinth and telling her that since she was uneducated, she shouldn't speak in church or having all kinds of other cultural advice to offer, not just churches in that part of the world, but also some of the pastors he was sending out to do ministry in those churches, where the success of the church was going to depend, by and large, on fitting in with the cultural standards of the day. This isn't terribly different from where we are now, and it's an interesting parallel to where Paul was trying to find a way to speak a common language with cities that, in many cases, he was visiting for the very first time, understanding their culture and understanding how to reach them, how to be understood and heard by them, by speaking in these language codes, by telling stories in ways that they might understand. This is not unlike what Jesus did with parables, speaking of the bridegroom coming and women trimming their wicks and making sure they have enough oil in their lamps. These are examples that might be used that would resonate in the culture of their day. But that culture changed. And in that passage in Acts chapters 10 and 11, where Peter is told to go to the home of a Gentile and baptize them, that was radical at the time. He was actually scolded by some of the Christians who were starting the church in Jerusalem because he was reaching outside of Judaism and doing a a ministry that they frankly rejected. In the same way that the actions of Peter and Paul here were rejecting the culture of making that distinction between Jew and Gentile, it was also acting in such a way as to reject the culture of male and female. They didn't get anywhere near what we might call a modern 21st century understanding of the relationship between men and women, but they also weren't anywhere near the understanding of a thousand years earlier in Judaism either. They were controversial for their day. I don't think we give them enough credit for that. I've mentioned on Inappropriate Conversations, also on a guest appearance on the Tech Support Rich show on simplysyndicated.com, that Paul really cuts to the heart of some of the arguments about what should we be doing with the cultural standards we've been given in the Old Testament, in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 26, says this, "...it is through faith that all of you are God's sons in union with Christ Jesus." You were baptized into union with Christ, and now you are clothed, so to speak, with the life of Christ himself. So there is no difference between Jews and Gentiles, between slaves and free men, between men and women. You are all one in union with Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are the descendants of Abraham and receive what God has promised. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26-29 through Paul is saying, that in the eyes of Jesus Christ, there is no difference between man and woman. There is no male-female distinction to be made. And if he had to speak in the language of the culture in which he preached, he perhaps, if he were able to see through history to where we are now, and look at the way some of the things he wrote in other letters, like the letters to the Corinthians, are being used to form a gender divide, to marginalize women, to tell somebody that the Holy Spirit is telling to share their witness, to pipe down your female... I think it would grieve Paul very deeply. I think we all sort of assume, as modern Christians, that there's a lot of things going on in our society that would not just confuse, not just create a sense of mourning in the early apostles, but would absolutely terrify them. My guess is that if we jumped 2,000 years into the future, we'd see a few terrifying things as well. But among the things I believe that Paul, based on what he wrote in the letter to Galatians, What I find terrifying is the fact that the Holy Spirit is living and moving inside women within our society. And depending on nothing more than the denomination to which they were joining, the Holy Spirit can be completely quenched. It's as if, in some circles, some parts of Roman Catholicism, some parts of Baptist churches... That Christian men who presume to be leaders have wrapped their hands around the Holy Spirit and choked him in the female neck through which he's trying to speak. Now, those are hard words. Those are fighting words, I suppose. Those are the kind of words that the author, Bessie, would suggest that I not speak in that way. That we try to build bridges and we try to find common ground. But I think the first thing is, I can't turn a cheek if I don't have it. So in the interest of turning the other cheek eventually... I think it first becomes necessary for me to answer a question, and I want to use this inappropriate conversation show to do it. What did Jesus think about the role of women in the church? I'm going to share a little bit from scripture, share my feelings about that scripture, maybe even a clip of music, and even when we get to the different drummer segment, I'll even answer the question further. What was the role of women in the ministry that Jesus was doing with the church? Let me start with a woman who doesn't really have a name. She doesn't have a name for a couple of reasons. First, she's a sinful woman. She's a woman that Jesus' disciples were, frankly, aghast that he was even talking to at all, much less sharing thoughts about his ministry and his purpose and his divinity with her. And the other problem was that she was from Samaria. She was a Samaritan woman. Now, the thing to understand about Jews and Samaritans, and it's important to understand this up front, It's also important to understand it in the parable of the Good Samaritan, because at one point, the bulk of the Jewish nation was captured in conquest and hauled off to exile. And some of the ones who were left behind, some of the people who didn't get taken into captivity, survived primarily by intermarrying and intermingling their culture with people that the Jewish people had always believed were their their enemies. And when the Jews were eventually returned to their promised land from a very lengthy time of exile, you ended up with a generation of intermarried people born through these unions. And while the Jews in exile were trying their best to keep their culture alive and keep their religion pure, they encountered the Samaritans who had formerly been Jews, who had, in their opinion, not fought the good fight, not taken the high road, and it defiled their cultural heritage. This made Jews and Samaritans enemies of one another. And even the idea of passing through Samaria on the way to anywhere else in ancient Israel would have been perceived as a very risky move, a very suspect decision. And yet, I want to pick up with John chapter 4, right at the beginning of the chapter, where Jesus has navigated this particular course and finds himself in a city in Samaria. Quoting the Gospel writer, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was winning and baptizing more disciples than John, John the Baptist. Actually, Jesus himself did not baptize anyone, only his disciples did. So when Jesus heard what was being said, he left Judea and went back to Galilee. And on his way, he had to go through Samaria. In Samaria, he came to a town named Sychar, which was not far from the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by the trip, sat down by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, "'Give me a drink of water.' His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The woman answered, "'You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan. So how can you ask me for a drink?' "'Jews will not use the same cups and bowls that Samaritans use.' Jesus answered, If only you knew what God gives, and who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you life-giving water. Sir, the woman said, You don't have a bucket, and the well is deep. Where would you get that life-giving water? It was our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well, and he and his sons and his flocks all drank from it. You don't claim to be greater than Jacob, do you? Jesus answered, "'Whoever drinks this water will get thirsty again, "'but whoever drinks the water that I will give him "'will never be thirsty again. "'The water that I will give him will become in him "'a spring of water which will provide him "'with life-giving water and give him eternal life.' "'Sir,' the woman said, "'give me that water, "'then I will never be thirsty again, "'nor will I have to come here to draw water. "'Go and call your husband,' Jesus told her, "'and come back.' "'I don't have a husband,' she answered. "'Jesus replied, "'You are right when you say you don't have a husband. You have been married to five men, and the man you live with now is not really your husband. You have told me the truth.' "'I see that you are a prophet, sir,' the woman said. "'My Samaritan ancestors worshipped God on this mountain, but you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where we should worship God.' Jesus said to her, "'Believe me, woman,' The time will come when people will not worship the Father either on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans do not really know whom you worship, but we Jews know whom we worship, because it is from the Jews that salvation comes. But the time is coming, and is already here, when by the power of God's Spirit people will worship the Father as He really is, offering Him the true worship that He wants. God is Spirit. And only by the power of His Spirit can people worship Him as He really is. The woman told Him, I know that the Messiah will come, and when He comes, He will tell us everything. Jesus answered, I am He, I who am talking with you. At that moment, Jesus' disciples returned, and they were greatly surprised to find Him talking with a woman. But none of them said to her, What do you want? Or asked Him, Why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to town and said to the people there, Come and see the man who told me everything I have ever done. Could he be the Messiah? So they left town and went to Jesus. In the meantime, the disciples were begging Jesus, Teacher, have something to eat. But he answered, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So the disciples started asking amongst themselves, Could somebody have brought him food? My food, Jesus said to them, is to obey the will of the one who sent me, and to finish the work he gave me to do. You have a saying, four more months, and then the harvest. But I tell you, take a good look at the fields. The crops are now ripe and ready to be harvested. The man who reaps the harvest is being paid and gathers the crops for eternal life. So the man who plants and the man who reaps will be glad together, For the saying is true. One man plants, another man reaps. I have sent you to reap a harvest in a field where you did not work. Others work there, and you profit from their work. Many of the Samaritans in that town believed in Jesus because the woman had said, He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they begged him to stay with them, and Jesus stayed there for two days. Many more believed because of his message, and they told the woman, We believe now, not because of what you said, but because we ourselves have heard him, and we know that he is really the savior of this world. She's also
1: very bold yes. and um, not afraid to back down. I mean, she stands up to Tarkin right. on the bridge of his ship yep, she does. and says some, something to the extent of, um. The more you tighten your grip, the more systems will slip through your fingers. He's, like, towering over her. Oh, They'd yeah, her she's not afraid. She's, I think that was a nice choice, too. Not only is Carrie Fisher very smart uh-huh. and um, articulate, but she's small. So it's a yes. nice contrast to see this small woman be so independent and fierce, you know, yeah. standing up against something that's so much bigger than her. <laughs> I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And when you're not listening to this glorious podcast, we would love to have you listen to ours, the Anomaly Podcast. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y (laughs) podcast.com.
0: when jesus in this passage talks about drinking a water from which you'll never be thirsty again it reminds me of a clip that i've played before when i named chris rice a different drummer Other End of this inappropriate conversation, after the theme music, I'm going to include a song written and performed by a friend of the family. Connie Smith, and her song Because You Were Love, has at least one verse focusing specifically on this passage that I shared from John's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. Note here that if you are someone who believes in your heart that the church has always taught and therefore the church is never wrong, that women shouldn't be preaching in church. Help explain to me what is described here in John chapter four. First, Jesus shared his mission, perhaps more directly than he ever had before with anyone else, with a woman, not just a woman, a woman who was engaging in questionable practices, who had moved in a serial monogamous way from relationship to relationship, and he calls her on that. Challenges are on the decisions that she's made and the way that she's living her life. And nevertheless, he equips her with the information that she needs to go and do what? To go and proclaim the good news. To go and preach. And to go and preach not just to other women, not just to children, but to men and women alike who heard her message, came to follow her to the Savior of whom she spoke, and found themselves in a position of salvation, that Jesus's disciples would have thought completely unthinkable if he had told them that this was his plan from the very start. At the beginning of the passage, it's clear that even traveling through Samaria at all was viewed as a suspect move, a regrettable navigational decision. And Jesus nevertheless turned that into a clear moment of ministry, where the Lord himself, if you are a Christian, has told us that women not only can preach the gospel, not only can preach the gospel to men and women alike, but he, perhaps, in all of scripture, was the first to equip and send out a woman specifically for that reason. There didn't have to be anything special about her. She's described in the passage as a sinful woman. The people in town are skeptical of her at first, In fact, part of the reason that they go to hear Jesus in person is to make a decision for themselves because they weren't 100% sure that they could trust maybe not any woman, but certainly not this woman. The Lord works in mysterious ways, as the saying goes. But more than 2,000 years ago, he worked in the mysterious way of empowering women to share his gospel message just like any man. You can have a quarrel with Paul if you want to over whether or not him equipping people like Priscilla for ministry, and not just her husband. Or Junia, not just other men in Rome. And you can quarrel with Peter. But you have to wrestle, I think, with the fact that Paul has submitted himself to the lordship of Christ, and that Peter has actually seen a vision from God himself telling him that those old patriarchal rules are gone. That there's no divide between Jew and Gentile. There's no divide... On economic basis, between people who were slaves, meaning that they were economically disadvantaged and couldn't pay their debts, and people who were free. And there's no divide between men and women. Nerd, nerd,
1: nerd, nerd. nerd Hurdles, where every week Jacob and Mandy will help you navigate the labyrinth of nerddom. Don't be afraid.
2: But you will be. No, you won't. You will be. Nerd, this, this is, is simply syndicated.com. Hey, Mandy. Have you heard about Simply Everything? Why no,
1: Jacob, I've not heard about Simply Everything. What is that?
2: Simply Everything is the paid subscription service provided by Simply Syndicated. I love Simply Syndicated! Which features such great shows as Make It So, and Movies You Should See, Do Ah. Ask, Do Tell, all the Federation shows like Starbase 66, Nerd Hurdles, The Masters of None.
1: How do I sign up?
2: Well everything you need to know is at simply slash everything.
1: Everything? I love everything.
2: For a mere four pounds ninety nine pence per month. Is that what it is? That's what it is. Ninety nine pence? I don't know. I don't know how they say it, like four ninety nine pounds. What about four pounds ninety nine? Four pounds ninety nine, yeah.
1: For under five pounds? <laughs>
2: For under five pounds of flesh. Not of flesh. That's not what they deal in in the UK? Uh, I don't think so. That's not what a pound is? Is not a pound of flesh? I think so. Everything I know about Shakespeare has led me to believe that a pound is a pound of flesh.
1: Uh, yeah. No, that's in Venice.
2: Oh, right. That's why we're not going to Italy. Yeah. On vacation. Right. It's a streaming service, not unlike Netflix. Ooh. When you sign up, you can listen to everything Simply Syndicated has ever made. Whenever you want? Whenever you want. It's simply everything.
1: <laughs> Nerds. Ner- 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 ner-
0: I mentioned that I was going to carry on with this topic into the Different Drummer segment, and the obvious, in my opinion, Different Drummer for this particular inappropriate conversation is Mary of Magdala. I think before I get into any quotations from Wikipedia, and I intend to share a great deal from Wikipedia today, I've mentioned critically in the past that sometimes Wikipedia misses the mark, but today Wikipedia has a pretty good entry for Mary of Magdala. But I think it's more important to start off with the first passage in the Bible in which she appears. And before I go there, I want to put it into the context, starting not just with the beginning of Luke chapter 8, but actually starting at the end of Luke chapter 7, again, to provide a little bit of context for this introduction of several women who the Bible describes as being active participants in Jesus's ministry. I said it before in Inappropriate Conversations, and I'll say it again. There weren't just 12 disciples following Jesus around. There was a large number of people, including people with who'd brought their wives and their children with them. And in this case, some women who were independently following Jesus, and in some cases following Jesus without a husband to legitimize the relationship, as I've already established by sharing that passage from John's Gospel. Jesus didn't need any permission to engage in ministry with people who were women, with people who were lepers, with people who were foreigners. He just did it. Here's Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 39. A Pharisee invited Jesus to have dinner with him, and Jesus went to his house and sat down to eat. In that town was a woman who lived a sinful life. She heard that Jesus was eating in the Pharisee's house, so she brought an alabaster jar full of perfume and stood behind Jesus by his feet, crying and wetting his feet with her tears. Then she dried his feet with her hair, kissed them, and poured the perfume on them. When the Pharisee saw this, he said to himself, If this man really were a prophet, he would know who this woman is who is touching him, and he would know what kind of sinful life she lives. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Yes, teacher, he said, tell me. There were two men who owed money to a moneylender. Jesus began... One owed him five hundred silver coins, and the other one fifty. Neither one could pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Which one, then, will love him more? I suppose, answered Simon, that it will be the one who is forgiven more. You are right, said Jesus. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your home, and you gave me no water for my feet. And she has washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You did not welcome me with a kiss, but she has not stopped kissing my feet since I came. You provided no olive oil for my head, but she has covered my feet with perfume. I tell you then, the great love she has shown proves that her many sins have been forgiven. But whoever has been forgiven little shows only a little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, "'Your sins are forgiven.' The others, sitting at the table, began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? But Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Some time later, Jesus traveled through towns and villages, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God. The twelve disciples went with him, and so did some women, who had been healed of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had been driven out. Joanna, whose husband Chusa was an officer in Herod's court, and Susanna, and many other women who used their own resources to help Jesus and his disciples. The argument I'd like to make is one that the Wikipedia entry for Mary Magdalene helps make quite well, is that the woman in the passage at the end of chapter 7 is not Mary of Magdala. It is clearly a different woman in the passage at the beginning of chapter 8, She is among women, probably a widow, who had resources available that they could use to support the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. She was not somebody who was essentially uh, banished from her society and exiled. Now, it does say that she was healed. Healed of what we would probably today call mental illness. But this notion that Mary of Magdala was some sort of prostitute is, frankly, unfounded in the text. The Wikipedia entry begins this way. Mary Magdalene, or Mary of Magdala, is a religious figure in Christianity. She is usually thought of as the second most important woman in the New Testament, after Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary Magdalene traveled with Jesus as one of his followers. She was present at Jesus' two most important moments, the crucifixion and the resurrection. Within the four Gospels, the oldest historical record mentioning her name, she's named at least 12 times, more than most of the Apostles. The Gospel references describe her as courageous, brave enough to stand by Jesus in the hours of his suffering, death, and beyond. In the New Testament, Jesus cleansed her of seven demons, sometimes referring to them as complex mental illnesses. Mary's most prominent during Jesus' last days. When Jesus was crucified by the Romans, Mary Magdalene was there supporting him in his final moments and mourning his death. She stayed with him at the cross after the male disciples, except for John, had fled. She was at his burial, and she's the only person that all four Gospels say was first to realize that Jesus had risen, and to testify to that central teaching of the faith. That's the introduction that we're given in the Wikipedia entry about Mary. I'm much more interested, though, in the section called The Identity of Mary's in the New Testament. Because what we're going to find is that at some point in history, whether in an intentional, conspiratorial way, or whether as a happy accident of ignorance or laziness, this particular Mary, the one from Magdala, was merged into other figures of the Bible named Mary, and somewhere along the way, her reputation was tarnished as a result. Again, picking up with the Wikipedia entry. Mary was a very common name in New Testament times, held by a number of women in the canonical Gospels. The reception history of Mary Magdalene has been greatly affected by different interpretations as to which Bible references actually refer to her, beyond those where she is identified by the name Magdalene. Historically, the Greek Orthodox Church Fathers as a whole distinguished among what what they believe were three Marys. My guess is there's at least three, maybe more. The Virgin Mary, Mother of Christ, is one, Saint Mary Magdalene is another, and Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, is yet another. In addition, there was Mary, the mother of James, and Mary Salome. In the four Gospels, Mary Magdalene is nearly always distinguished from other women named Mary by adding Magdalene to her name. Traditionally this has been interpreted to mean that she was from Magdala, a town thought to have been on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Let me jump forward in the article to where things went wrong and the notion of a composite Magdalene of the Middle Ages. Again quoting, it is almost universally agreed that the characterizations of Mary by the western church as a repentant prostitute and loose woman are unfounded arising from conflating or merging her identity with the unnamed sinner who anoints Jesus' feet in Luke 7, verses 36-50. to Luke describes her as a sinner, but in the same account by John, this act is attributed to Mary of Bethany, a virtuous female disciple, who has an earlier reference in John as establishing her as the sister of Martha and Lazarus. The figure of Mary Magdalene, the anointing sinner of Luke, and Mary of Bethany were long regarded as the same person. Though Mary Magdalene is named in each of the four Gospels in the New Testament, none of the other clear references to her indicate that she was a prostitute or notable for a sinful way of life, nor link her with Mary of Bethany. Modern scholarship has restored the understanding of Mary of Magdala as an important early Christian leader. I would say that modern scholarship has distinguished her from all the other Mary's. There's something extremely naive about the idea that because you're named Mary, you must be the same person. The Catholic Church stopped before it made the one mistake of conflating Mary of Magdala and Mary of Bethany and unnamed sinful women anointing Jesus's feet with Mary, the mother of Christ. But that's because in the Catholic Church, Mary, Mary, the mother of Christ is held on a pedestal so high that you couldn't push Magdala up to it if you tried. Quoting Wikipedia again, The notion of Mary Magdalene being a repentant sinner can be traced at least as far back as Ephraim the Syrian from the 4th century and became the norm in the Western Church after the homily of Pope Gregory I, a.k.a. Gregory the Great, in about 591. It is Pope Gregory, in this speech, who uses Mary as a composite figure, conflating her with other Gospel references and using her to represent the seven capital sins— now not only being condemned for the lust of the unnamed woman, the a.k.a. prostitute, but also being condemned for sins like pride and covetousness as well. This from a figure that many people in the Roman Catholic Church believe is incapable of making scriptural or doctrinal error, clearly made a scriptural and doctrinal error here. Now, interestingly, when you're talking about the 6th century, it is quite possible that a pope could not have conceived of doing anything with relation to the reputation of a woman as being worthy of being called out as being in doctrinal error. Because one thing that might be in common between the pre-Christ days of ancient Judaism and the Middle Ages, Dark Ages period in the church is that the understanding of women, the appreciation, for want of a better word, of the role that women can play in ministry, or the ability of the Holy Spirit to move through women, to lead women to prophesy, as Peter testified on the day of Pentecost, well, it was just completely dismissed. The church during this era did not regard women as being any more credible than the church in the time that Jesus was preaching or in the communities in the Greek and Asia Minor parts north of Jerusalem, north of Israel, where Paul was preaching. These are radical ideas that are being expressed here, however. When Jesus is doing active ministry and taking the resources of widows and people that he has healed, when he is talking to Samaritan women in the well and sending them off to proclaim that he is indeed the promised Messiah, that's a big deal. When the Lord himself, the Holy Spirit perhaps, is leading gospel writers to record that the first person to find Jesus resurrected was a woman. Again, we don't appreciate how radical these ideas are. Mary of Magdala, at the time that she lived, would have had no more credibility in a court of law, in fact, far less credibility in a court of law than a multiple-time convicted drug dealer testifying on whether or not somebody had laundered money she would have had zero credibility for no other reason than being a woman. And yet, if you believe that the Bible is the inspired holy word of God, the person that God himself chose as the first witness of the miracle of the resurrection, a miracle which in and of itself certifies that Jesus was indeed the Messiah as he told the woman at the well he was, was yet another woman. I believe, just speaking as a Christian, as a matter of conviction— I believe that there are no accidents or mistakes to be found here, that this is not just the mere coincidence of happenstance. I believe that if God has a hand moving through history, that there is some intent in having one of the clearest passages of Jesus sharing individually, one on one, with a stranger that he is indeed God incarnate, that that conversation happened with a woman, and a woman of low reputation. Likewise, for Jesus to be appearing in resurrected form first to a woman, and not any of the other disciples or even followers who happen to be male, well, I think we're supposed to take something from this. I think we're supposed to weigh this evidence just a little bit more heavily than Paul's words to somebody who was speaking ignorantly and confusing people about the gospel message, who also just happened to be a woman. I think Paul would have referred to her, in one way or another in the vernacular of his day, as a loud-mouthed man if he'd happened to be male. And you can't convince me that the church as we know it today, and the church for the last 1,500 years, would have suggested that no man was allowed to be pope, and no man was allowed to be priest, because Paul rebuked a loud-mouthed man from Corinth 2,000 years ago. Would we? Before Mary is formally introduced to us in the 8th chapter of Luke, for the very first time in the Bible, there's a reference to a woman who's described as being sinful, and who Jesus, after praising her for her faith, sends her to go away. Literally, two verses later, we're talking about Mary of Magdala, who was following Jesus and had been following Jesus. There's nothing in the context of this passage again, separated by a mere verse and a half, that tells us that it's possible that those are the same woman. It seems incredibly unlikely that Luke wouldn't connect the dots in a pronoun antecedent situation that is literally that grammatically close to each other if he had any expectation that this might be the same woman. If we jump from Mary of Magdala to one other Mary, just for a moment, and look at that particular passage... I think it's going to reveal something pretty important to us about Jesus's attitude about whether or not he wanted women in the kitchen doing housework or at his feet, listening to his message. But before I get to that and close this perspective on whether there's anything appropriate about gender segregation in the church, let me end the sort of segment on Mary F. Magdala by herself in the sense of saying that. This is somebody who is faithful to Jesus to the end, and faithful in the same way that a leper being healed might be faithful. But we can't take for granted that there's a cause and effect relationship there. Because throughout the passages in the Bible detailing healings and miraculous touches of Jesus, there are always instances where more than one person was healed from an ailment, and some came back to express their gratitude, and some didn't. And in this case, I'm quite certain that there are biblical passages or unrecorded passages in the ministry of Jesus where he healed women who did not then turn around and join him and his followers and spend their time and their resources, literally spend the, their prayers and their presents and their gifts and their service doing ministry with the other disciples in a faithful way, in a steadfast way all the way to the end, not just to the point of death, not just to the point of burial, but beyond. Among all the people who've appeared in the Bible, Mary of Magdala holds that special place. stating it was in the gospel of Luke chapter 8 where we first get a formal introduction to Mary of Magdala. A couple chapters later though, Luke chapter 10 verses 38 to 42, we get this passage about a completely different Mary, a Mary who lives in Bethany with a sister Martha and a brother Lazarus. As Jesus and his disciples went on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary, who sat down at the feet of the Lord and listened to his teaching. Martha was upset over the work she had to do, so she came and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to come and help me. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled over so many things, but just one is needed. Mary has chosen the right thing, and it will not be taken away from her. There was a time in church history where it would not have just been suggested that women are not allowed to preach and teach in the church, but they weren't allowed to learn either. It is hard to conceive of how that could be interpreted through the ministry or even the words of Jesus, who in this example specifically says, he wants the woman in this house who is listening to him not to stop. Because women have no place listening to these theological things, that there's no reason Jesus would believe that Mary could have a testimony to make to others based on what she's hearing from Jesus. Quite the opposite. Jesus turns to her sister, who is in some ways being what I might describe as a busybody within the church. Somebody who's obsessed with how the chairs are arranged, or where the chalkboard is hung, or how the dishes are being cleaned and whether they're being stowed away properly. Jesus turns to that person, the church lady, to make a reference to Saturday Night Live, and tells her that her place should be where her sister's is. He tells Martha that he's not going to tell her sister Mary to stop listening to the gospel message and start cleaning up around the house. He does exactly the opposite. He tells Martha she's made the wrong choice, and she would be much better served listening to what Jesus has to say. I believe that like the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman in John's Gospel, Jesus wanted this particular Mary to hear every word that he had to say, because one day she was going to be expected to turn around and share it. On the Walk the Earth podcast, I'm talking about the questions that I'm encountering as I visit churches that are strange to me, denominations that I've never really attended much before, and I'm taking in the differences that I'm seeing. One of the differences that I've encountered a little bit is the role of women in the church even in the year 2013 is not consistent from place to place it's not impossible to find churches where women are not expected or even allowed to have an active role to play in worship this surprises me when i encounter it the notion that a woman shouldn't be allowed to teach sunday school for example because it doesn't have a single thing to do with the consistent actions let alone words, of Jesus in the gospel. So as I walk the earth, it's one of the things I'm looking for. It's a litmus test. I will not be joining a church that has this sort of gender divide. It simply will not happen. From an inappropriate conversations perspective, it will not happen because that teaching is so clearly and obviously theologically unsound. I may have you know, female authors who I've invested my time in and reading and paying close attention to who would tell me to stop right here, to not say another word, because the next word I might say about it could be harsh, could be destructive, could be taking the passages of the Bible that I've shared and hold pretty dear to my heart, using them as a weapon instead of using them as the good news they were intended to be. So I'll take those words to heart and I'll stop here. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. I also have a presence on Facebook with pages both for Inappropriate Conversations and for Walk the Earth. On Twitter, I am at ic underscore greg. And the show notes for each one of the episodes of Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth appear at www.inappropriateconversations.org. Comments are enabled there. Thanks for listening.
1: Music by Kevin McLeod.
2: 48 Network find all the best shows under the rainbow at Pride 48